and welcome to the Real Weird Podcast with JT Barrett, episode one, buy the ticket, take the ride, fear and loathing in Las Vegas. Hello everyone, welcome to the first ever episode of Real Weird Podcast, I'm your host JT Barrett. Before we begin, I just want to give a few housekeeping notes. First, I'm working a regular day job right now, so I can't promise a regular schedule for the time being. Um, I will try and get these out as quick as possible without letting quality slip but I make no promises as to how quick that is. For now, I'm going to be aiming for uh, bi-monthly, so every two weeks, ideally. Secondly, the style I'm going to go for with this is kind of like the old Siskel and Ebert, basically. I'm going to try and keep it down to earth and discuss the movies on intellectual level as much as I can. I'm going to give a little, you know, a little of both. I'm hoping everyone will find at least something interesting in what I have to say, but I didn't want to let the show get too dry or have the discussion be too superficial, you know. I don't want to get bogged down in analysis, but I also don't want to, like, just just say, yeah, that movie was really good, the effects were great, here's who's in it, moving on. Um, So I'm going to be aiming for a little bit of everything. I want to try and get a mix of uh, cult classics, mainstream movies, art house films, and definitely some more obscure stuff that I find interesting. Third, this is going to be a movie podcast pretty much entirely. Um, I'm going to include some TV shows and music that I like, if I will find the time to do that. But it's pretty much entirely going to be movies. I'll, I'll let you know if it's going to be a TV show or music in the episode description and title. Uh, fourth, I have a Patreon up right now, actually. It's under JT Barrett. It should have the same logo as the uh, Twitter and Instagram pages, so it should be easy to find. It's just under my uh, my name, JT Barrett, so that's B-A-R-R-E-T-T. Uh, I've got a $1, $5, and $10 a month patron pledge level, so if you guys want to help support the show, help make this a little more regular... Uh, I might even make this my full-time job if I can get that monthly level up high enough because I don't want to rely solely off of sponsorships and ad revenue, but I will be doing this either way. And finally, any and this is the big one, any movie or TV show discussion on the podcast is going to include spoilers unless otherwise stated because, you know, sometimes if you want to, like, discuss a movie's merits and give a good entire picture of it. Uh, spoilers are kind of unavoidable in a lot of cases. So I, I just don't want anyone to go into this and, you know, complain that I ruined a movie for them <laughs> just because, you know, I told you what happens at the end. Cause I, I have seen movies where it's like, if you, you're going to spoil the movie, if you discuss something important that happens like 10 minutes in. So I just wanted to get that out of the way. Now, all that being said, we're going to go over one of my personal favorite movies. Uh, Sadly, it was a box office flop when it premiered in 1998. Unfortunately, it was a really, really crowded um, year, that one. You had really big budget movies like uh, Saving Private Ryan or A Bug's Life or Fourth Lethal Weapon came out that one, not that year. So it just kind of got buried. But... It is probably one of the biggest like cult classic movies there is. It's one of my personal favorites, as I've mentioned and probably will repeatedly mention again. And it is, as critic Jay Hoberman called a lowbrow art film, and quote, probably the most widely screened midnight movie of all time. 
Yes, based on the infamous book by Hunter S. Thompson of the same name, the show is going to debut with Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, directed by Monty Python alum Terry Gilliam and starring Johnny Depp and Benicio Del Toro. So I guess just to give a brief synopsis of the movie, for those that haven't seen it or have not read the book, the overall premise is that there's this kind of oddball reporter named Raul Duke, his lawyer, Dr. Gonzo, and they're kind of holdovers from the, you know, 60s counterculture. The year is 1971, and... They have gone to Las Vegas to cover the Mint 400 off-road race, which is this big uh, motocross race in the desert around Vegas. On the surface level, and this is kind of what gives the movie most of its entertainment value, um, is that their drug-related antics keep getting in the way of them doing this. And it spurs them on to all sorts of weirdness. Uh, Duke especially is ruminating on you know, the 60s counterculture, all the hippies, the free love, the anti-war movement, all that stuff, and he's seeking the American dream. And actually, a side note before we move on, this is honestly the first movie I've seen where it got an R rating for basically no violence and no on-screen sexual content. The MPAA rating includes, and I quote, pervasive extreme drug use and related bizarre behavior to, uh, <laughs> to give you some idea of what the movie's like. Uh, even if you have no interest in the literature behind it or the, you know, deeper analysis of the movie, it's definitely worth a watch anyway. Anyway, so, uh, back on topic, I had not read the book before watching the movie, so just full disclosure about that, but understanding the book also helps with understanding the movie, and it's what really helps with, like, looking past the surface level, which is just all the weird... Frankly, all the weird shit that these two get up to. <laughs> just because they take drugs in what is probably the worst town to do so, just because of the sensory overload that you can get into. But I'll give you some... I'll give you the movie's events. Just briefly walk you through it, so we can get some idea of the weirdness before we get into the more serious topics at hand. So, first up, the overall sequences. And I mean, overall, given the structure of the movie, it's hard to divide up into uh, distinct snippets to talk about. Yeah, I can't really, like, analyze this, like, third act, you know, setup, conflict, resolution. It, it would be... I, I think a lot of people have divided the novel up into the first half and the second half, or, you know, the fear and the loathing, as some like to put it. Uh, for the sake of this, just because I can like neatly break them up into these five sections, I'm going to say there's the intro, there's the Mint 400 arc, if you want to put it that way, there's the little interlude in the desert, there's the Flamingo Hotel arc, and then there's the Adrenochrome sequences, which is basically the last 20-25 uh, minutes of the movie. So the intro opens with uh, news archive footage of Vietnam and the anti-war protests and um, kind of as a weird little juxtaposition of mood, there's uh, my favorite things, the song from The Sound of Music playing in the background. And there's this weird sort of like blood splatter effect before the title comes up with a similar font. And then you hear Johnny Depp doing a wonderful impression of Hunter S. Thompson, because that's basically who Raoul Duke is, just an assumed name. And he recites the uh, infamous opening lines from the book. Uh, the, mu the music drops out, and you hear, 
We were somewhere around Barstow, on the edge of the desert, when the drugs began to take hold. And then the scene transitions uh, very jarringly to Duke and Gonzo roaring down the desert highway in a convertible. Uh, it's actually referred to as the Great Red Shark, which is uh, 70, 71 or 72, I want to say. It's a Chevy Caprice, which is the, the one they had in the movie, funnily enough, is actually Hunter S. Thompson's real car. Um, there's a fair amount of like offbeat humor as Duke begins to hallucinate giant I kid you not, giant bats and manta rays swooping down on the car. He's like batting them away. Gonzo's just slumped over in the passenger seat. And when he pulls over to swap driving duty with Gonzo, he goes to the trunk. And this is like one of my f- favorite shorter snippets of voiceover. And he just lists off all the stuff he has in his little bag of drugs. He's like, we had two bags of grass, 75 pellets of mescaline, a salt shaker half full of cocaine. <laughs> and they... And then it'll just proceed onward. Uh, they pick up a hitchhiker, played by Tobey Maguire, actually, in one of his earlier roles. And this is where we get most of their whole background. It cuts to uh, scenes of them hanging out in the Beverly Heights Hotel in Los Angeles. Uh, they end up skipping out on a hotel bill to uh, go get supplies for their little road trip to cover them in 400. And then we just get the little series of scenes of them doing that, gathering or hanging up the supplies. And it cuts back to the scene in the present day with them with the hitchhiker. And the hitchhiker, both in the movie and the book, is kind of described as this sort of uh, uh, oaky. So I'm guessing he's like a Midwestern kid or whatever. And, you know, he's uh, he's come out to try and join the counterculture. And then he gets up close with these two, like, raving lunatics. I mean... Gonzo especially, but Duke too. Um, Their behavior kind of pushes him over the edge, and he just sort of nopes out of the car. And the two race for Vegas and check into the Mint Hotel. And unfortunately for Duke, they arrive right as the uh, LSD that he ate earlier kicks in, which leads to him just sort of uh, wandering around the hotel lobby, just looking completely out of his mind. And he's actually frightened the hotel patrons and the hotel staff to the point where Gonzo has to take him up to the suite because they were ready to call the police. What follows is like a series of incidents where he tries to cover them in 400 race. And he gets seemingly foiled by either his own actions or by Gonzo just being utterly chaotic. Some of them include a scene where Duke is trying to have a beer when the race begins. And the race, the race because it's off-road in the desert, it's in the dry lake just outside of vegas actually and it kicks up so much dust that quote in any conventional press sense unquote he feels it's impossible to cover the race uh he and gonzo later have an encounter with their photographer that they were supposed to meet up with named lacerda and it ends up gonzo ends up threatening him with a knife after leaving the room to avoid gonzo for a bit to clear his head duke comes back and he finds gonzo just just having a bad trip. He's just freaking out. He's in the bathtub. It's like the room's flooded. There's like these, uh, I guess, husks of like grapefruit everywhere. And he's just, he's just in the tub in his like, his tidy whities but he's got like his suit on. And there's a rather comical scene where Gonzo's actually like begging Duke to just, <laughs> they brought like a portable radio and cassette player. And Gonzo's actually asking him to like, 
throw it into the tub with him when it hits like this really uh, awesome note in the song uh, White Rabbit by Jefferson Airplane. And Duke just like pulls a grapefruit and at the last minute he just like throws it and hits him in the head with it. <laughs> it just starts spazzing out because he thinks he's being electrocuted. So after that, uh, Duke goes to sleep finds out when he wakes up that Gonzo ran off and kind of left him to deal with the room service bills on his own. So that's when we get to what I've termed here, the desert interlude where Duke basically sneaks out of the hotel bill as uh, the hotel room to avoid the bill as well. Sorry. And he just tries to make a straight beeline for Los Angeles. He gets pulled over for speeding and after getting off relatively easy, he tries to sneak back through some back roads. He hits this little crossroads area to head for Baker. And he runs again into the hitchhiker, freaks out, and he heads to a junkyard nearby where there's a working phone booth and he contacts Gonzo. And he finds out that he's supposed to go cover this big uh, national district attorney's convention. It's basically just a law enforcement convention where they're discussing, you know, the menace of drugs and all that <laughs> and new tactics on how to crack down on it. So he goes back, rents a different car. This one's actually jokingly referred to as the great white whale in the book as a nice little reference to Moby Dick. Uh, he does it to avoid the Vegas police and he checks into the Flamingo hotel. There's a rather comical scene where he just walks in looking completely disheveled. There's all these like, uh, uh, you know, police officers and, <laughs> prosecuting attorneys in the lobby in their plain clothes. And they all just look at him for a second before going about their business. And he just sort of glances at his suitcase full of illegal drugs and says, my arrival was badly timed. <laughs> when he gets there though, and this is kind of one of the weirdest whole moments in the, in the movie, honestly, he finds, he goes to his room that he's rented that uh, Gonzo set him up with. And he finds both Gonzo there, just out of his mind on acid again. And there's this, oh God, I really don't like discussing this, but <laughs> there's this teenage runaway named Lucy who is clearly on a mix of liquor and LSD and is probably freaked out a little bit. And <laughs> I think it's just because like Gonzo's supposed to be on acid at this point. And when you're on it, you can't pick up on social cues very well, so he doesn't take the humor very well. I mean, it's kind of disgusting humor anyway, but Duke, in a morbid and disgusting bit of gallows humor, tries to shock Gonzo into action by jokingly suggesting that they keep her loaded with all this stuff and then just, like, pimp her out to the cops at the convention. Gonzo kind of realizes the, uh, the magnitude of the shit he's gotten himself into. And what they do is they set her up in another hotel and concoct this whole story to sort of deflect the blame onto some fictional assailants before she sobers up and just hopes that they she doesn't remember them. So then they go down to cover the National Narcotics Convention before getting fed up with that. And with what they see is the utter idiocy of law enforcement and a sort of like echo chamber about the dangers of drugs. And there's actually <laughs> there's actually a pretty funny deleted scene that I watched where they go into the sort of um, just like general floor of the casino, or which looks more like a casino. And they're talking with this district attorney from Georgia. And they just sort of like, 
they sort of lead him on with this weird sort of uh, made up story where about like, you know, Satanism freaks out in Los Angeles, some story where they like, you know, murdered someone in broad daylight and sucked out all the blood because they get high off that is what they basically framed it as. And he completely falls for it, which kind of just drives home, you know, the credentials of, you know, bearing the torch of the counterculture is kind of portraying the cops as kind of bumbling fools. And then finally, this is where we bleed over into the final sequence of the film. So they come back to their hotel room. They find out that Lucy called and they're both kind of paranoid that this is going to come back to bite them again. Uh, Gonzo returns the call and tells Duke, because Duke's freaking out right now, as he says, as your attorney, I advise you to take a hit out of the little brown bottle in my shaving kit. Duke does so, takes far more than advisable, and this is where we find out one of the more enduring legacies of the movie. Although it didn't admittedly start here, but this is probably, I think, where the, the urban legend of it comes from. A little mythical drug called adrenochrome. Now, for the record... There is a chemical compound of that name. But the version that appears in the book and the film is entirely fictional. There's a chemical of that name, which it happens, it's produced when adrenaline is combined with oxygen. It oxidizes. And the psychiatrist Humphrey Osmond uh, conducted limited studies that led some to believe it played a role in uh, schizophrenia and other sort of uh, uh, thought disorders, basically. It is not, to anyone's knowledge, usable as a psychedelic drug, and it's also neurotoxic, so it damages nerve tissue. And I'm pretty sure you don't need to extract a living human's adrenal glands to get some of it. I think Thompson just wanted to show something that was just completely wild, was like beyond the scope of any sort of like actual drug use, uh, just for the sake of entertainment, or making a point of something. And it comes across well in the movie. Duke begins to behave more erratically than he has in the whole movie, and that's a high bar. And it's shown not just in Johnny Depp's performance, but in the cinematography as well. The room is illuminated by this sort of overbearing pink, red, and purple lighting. Uh, there's this really weird sequence where there's like a fog machine going, and Gonzo seems to like morph into this horrific monster where he's got these, he's got these horns, he's got these claws, he's got like cat's eyes. He's got these like six like very hairy women's breasts growing out of his back. <laughs> and he's recounting the story of how he like got the stuff as he's feeding Duke some uh, cocaine hilariously off the edge of a knife. And then after Duke finally passes out, this is where we sort of snap back to reality later. Duke passes out, awakes to find the room is just completely destroyed. Uh, he has no memory of what happened or even how long this was going on. And when I say destroyed, I mean the walls are just smeared with condiments. There's uh, some sort of fluid that has flooded the room's floor to the point where debris is floating it. There's just random shit everywhere. There's this weird sort of like makeshift altered Debbie Reynolds <laughs> in just one section of it over the main bed in the room. I, I honestly, I, I've started working at a hotel recently and seeing that scene honestly just gives me anxiety right now because I know if that happened at our place, we'd never be getting that room back. We, we would just have to like tear everything down inside of it and just completely refurbish. 
I mean, it's beyond the cleaning level. And he wakes up, when he wakes up and he uncovers himself from the blanket, he has this big, like, tape recorder taped to his torso, and he's got a microphone strapped to his chest and face, and it's all secured with electrical tape. And every now and again, it just cuts back to him just, like, pressing one of the tabs, and he's playing snippets of the tape. And we just see these little little episodic scenes of the two of them just going around town wreaking havoc. There's this one scene where they're driving down the road and Gonzo is just hanging out of the side, completely despondent. He's like laughing his ass off. He's completely delirious. And he's like shouting at this car that's like driving next to them. And he has these like two very well-dressed tourist couples in it. And he's just like, he's like claiming to be like someone who just got back from Vietnam and he's trying to ask them if they want to buy any heroin. Uh, <laughs> and just kind of out of spite, he just swallows. He just uh, he just takes a swig of rum and then just spits it all over their window, which causes one of the guys to like flip out at him. There's uh, one scene where they are back in the hotel. A housekeeper comes in. Gonzo like wrestles her to the ground and they startle her after you know she accidentally startles them. And they get into this whole thing where they basically just feed her this line and convince them that they're like deep cover narcotics agents trying to break up a dope ring. And, you know, they they make her an informant. There's uh, one scene where they just buy a ton of coconuts from a local supermarket. And they just start breaking them open with hammers on the rented Cadillac. And they're just raving about, you know, like the World Bank and international finance and whatever. And it's much to the horror of the other shoppers at the grocery store because this is a Cadillac. These are like really, this was like one of the big fancy cars back in the day and still kind of is. Uh, There's one scene where they go back to Bazooko Circus, which is, it's basically Circus Circus if you've heard of that casino, but the actual Circus Circus wouldn't let them film there. And they're trying to like buy an ape off of some of the staff and then they get into a fight with the staff because the ape gets loose. It attacks someone and it just sort of destroys the little like carousel bar that they're on. And this next one is uh, kind of the most upsetting one. It's a scene where they go to this uh, diner in North Vegas because as uh, Duke puts it, North Vegas is where you go when you fucked up one too many times on the strip and when you're not even welcome in the cut rate places downtown. It's very early in the morning, and Gonzo, I forget what exactly, I'll have to rewatch, but he just does something to piss off the owner, who's this like really stressed out, like burnt out looking lady in her 30s. She's got like this scar on her lip, so she's probably seen some shit, you know? And when she just gets pissed off to the point where she tells him to just pay for their stuff and get out, Gonzo pulls his knife and out of rage just sort of repeatedly stabs the table in front of him and then cuts the cord for the payphone. He pays for a lemon meringue pie. The two leave. And then it's this kind of upsetting scene where we just cut back to this poor like diner owner and she's just like on the verge of having a breakdown and crying. And this is kind of what spurs the uh, final little episode in the sequence where they are basically racing through town to try and get uh, Gonzo back on the plane that he's supposed to catch. Uh, there's a funny scene where they actually like 
hit the brakes really hard because they see Lucy in the crosswalk, which isn't actually in the book, but the studio wanted um, wanted that scene just so the audience made sure that you know Lucy was all right. Lucy was Lucy was fine, um, and it leads to them like going in complete opposite direction. They're on the wrong road to get to the airport. Duke just says, "I've never missed a plane yet," and he just hard cuts the wheel, and they just race across the little desert, going off road. And they just bust through the airport fence. <laughs> There's a wonderful quote about the situation before then. Uh, Duke pretty much sums it up. It was all over for us. We'd abused every rule Vegas lived by. Burning the locals. Abusing the tourists. Terrifying the help. The only chance now, I felt, was the possibility that we'd gone to such excess that nobody in a position to bring the hammer down on us could possibly believe it. I mean, yeah, that pretty much sums it up. I mean, that last one is like, you guys... Yeah, you terrified the help, basically. You terrified the people that are just trying to make a living here. You've uh, you kind of absorbed the worst bits of the U.S., yes, honestly. But getting back to it, Gonzo boards the plane. Uh, you should know about Hunter S. Thompson. He absolutely despised Richard Nixon. So I think this was a nice little nod to it, is that uh, Gonzo does this sort of like, you know, Nixon salute when he's boarding Marine One. He just has like the two peace signs in the air, uh, even though that wouldn't happen for like another three years after when this movie's supposed to take place. Uh, and then it just cuts back to Duke just sitting in the hotel room that's completely destroyed. He's just sort of you know, working away on his typewriter. And he, the film ends with Duke giving one of the more memorable speeches in the book. It's like this and the wave speech that happens like a little bit before halfway in. Uh, and then it cuts to him uh, just speeding back towards L.A. in the white Cadillac. You just hear Rolling Stone music and the credits roll. And I did actually check out the book recently, and that's like the most fragmented, most scatterbrained part of the book. So it's honestly kind of an impressive way that they managed to uh, actually film that because this was one of those books where a lot of people thought for a while that it was just quote-unquote unfilmable. But they managed to do it in a way that was easy to follow, sort of. Uh, and it works really, really well. It's actually pretty impressive given the fact that this was a, a relatively low-budget movie for a major studio movie to do. Anyway, uh, <laughs> I'm sorry if I was kind of like rambling a little bit there. I just tried to explain the sequence of events in the whole movie. Um, if it sounds weird, that's because it's this movie. It's wonderfully weird. And I don't really know how I can really do describing the events justice. You kind of just have to see it. But now that we've gone over the movie that way, I'll uh, transition and we'll give you some of the literary background now. So the novel Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream by Hunter S. Thompson was published as a novel in 1972, and essentially it's a fictionalized account of two trips that Thompson took the previous year with this uh, Chicano rights, civil rights lawyer named Oscar Zeta Acosta. The novel, and I learned this term pretty recently, and I kind of like it, is a roman a clé, which means a novel with a key. This is a type of nonfiction that is an accounting of true events that's just overlaid with fiction. Now, there are many reasons you might do this. If the topic is controversial or you're communicating inside information, for example, it'll give you the opportunity to spin the story the way you want, 
satirize the events in question to make a point, um, avoid charges of libel or self-incrimination or incriminating others, which this definitely would have done if even half of this stuff was true. And according to Johnny Depp, because he basically crashed at Hunter S. Thompson's place for a long time to get into character, yeah, it's all true. And there's actually more, and it's worse, is how he put it. This doesn't mean there's no embellishment, but in theory, you can basically draw a you know one-to-one relationship between the fictional and real. It's like if you um, if you were doing a play that was a if you were doing a novel, sorry, if about the Revolutionary War, and all the characters were had their names changed, all the events, all the locations had their names changed. You could basically just say, okay, this guy's George Washington, this guy's Richard Cornwallis, this guy's Benedict Arnold, stuff like that. And that's what makes the novel what it is. In a sense, it's essentially Thompson just embellished the happenings of his time in Vegas with Oscar Costa, which was one trip in March and one trip in April of 1971. And... Thompson reportedly started to work on the manuscript on the last day of that trip after he finished an article that he was working on. So aside from the drug-induced antics that again gives the movie its humor and entertainment, it's what it's most known for, what makes it a well-made movie on an intellectual level is that it captures the same essence of the time its source material was written. And Terry Gilliam actually says in the director commentary that he made this movie because to him, the 90s, in a way, felt like it was going to be another 70s or 60s. I forget what she said, but essentially he kind of felt that there was going to be a similar sort of uh, counterculture in the 90s that the country was ripe for, and it just didn't happen. But he thought it was going to, so he thought that this was a very appropriate movie to be made at this time. And again... This was written in 1972. So the 60s, uh, you know, saw a lot of social change and upheaval in the U.S. Hunter, at a few points in the book, ruminates on it, looks back on it with a sort of nostalgia because he thought that it was a really, really good time. He loved the positivity. He loved the sense of, you know, we can basically do anything. Our, our you know, the positive energy is going to win out. But also with the disappointment in it because he kind of felt like some of it just sort of devolved into just into just hedonism, basically, and it failed to make any sort of uh, lasting improvement in the country, lasting change in the world, as he saw it anyway. Like It saw a general attitude of questioning and challenging societal norms. It saw the great explosion of the hippie counterculture. It saw the culmination of the civil rights movements, uh, not, not just the ones in like the South... Southeast United States, you know, the one everyone's heard of, but there was also the Chicano movement in the Southwest. Um, like Thompson puts it, there was a general sense of positivity and optimism and that they would simply just prevail by virtue of being better than the old, is how he put it, better than the status quo. And then it just failed to make any headway, it just sort of fizzled out, despite some of the gains made. Um, Benicio actually has a really, really good uh, input on this in the uh, commentary track that he did for the Criterion release. Uh, You know, JFK was killed. RFK was killed. Malcolm, Dr. King, Fred Hampton, they were all killed. The war in Vietnam began. It started to get more and more intractable as time went on. 
Nixon comes in, riding the wave of resentment over the war and promising to bring a peaceful end to it. And then the war not only doesn't end, it just escalates. And then he just used, you know, public fear about drugs and disorder and law and order to crack down heavily on the counterculture's remnants. Like Del Toro basically just put it this way, hope was shot in the head. And that's the context in which fear and loathing was conceived, and it comes across in the two big speeches. Uh, one, as I said, is about a middle of the way through. It's sometimes called the wave speech. You know, uh, We were riding the crest of a great and beautiful wave is the part where the name of that comes from. I'm, I'm going to read a... Uh, I think I'm actually going to do a supplement episode where... I just sort of read the full version, but there's a truncated version in the film. It's not the it's not the full text, but it's a shorter version that still gets the point across. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson was in Los Angeles at the time and had been asked by uh, whichever paper or magazine it was working for at the time to write an article uh, concerning the death of a Mexican-American TV journalist who was also big into the Chicano civil rights movement, and his name was Ruben Salazar. And that year, there was a group of Chicano activists, and they held an anti-war march. Ruben was covering it. And, you know, as often happens with, like, rallies or marches or demonstrations against war or for civil rights or sometimes just for, like, union or labor rights, the LA Sheriff's Department broke it up on flimsy pretenses, supposedly... They received a complaint that someone involved in the rally stole from a local liquor store, although the store owners later denied. Uh, I, I can I couldn't find if they either denied that anyone stole from them or denied that they called the police in the first place. But, you know, a brawl broke out. Ruben retreated into a nearby bar to get out of the midst of the craziness, and it was at this point that a deputy fired a tear gas grenade into the bar and it struck Ruben in the head, killing him instantly. And this is like the kind of gas grenade used to uh, breach like barricades instead of just like, you know, rolling into a room to like clear everyone out. Uh, no one was prosecuted for this. The sheriff's department settled with the family out of court, but given Salazar's activism, there were, and are people convinced that this was actually just a premeditated assassination. I mean, uh, it wasn't. It wasn't like two years ago that Fred Hampton from the Black Panther Party was assassinated. Um, so it was still basically fresh in everyone's mind. It was probably not a stretch either. And as you might imagine, you know, racial tensions in the city were on the heated side for the time. And it was at this setting that uh, Thompson reunited with a Chicano rights activist and lawyer named Oscar Acosta that he had met bad in uh, 1967. And I got to say, Oscar himself is a man that fascinates me just because the characterization that comes down to us today, but we'll get to that later. And, you know, feel free to look up stories about him on your own. Uh, the polo lounge at the hotel in the beginning of the movie is recounting of the decision to go to Vegas. Uh, Thompson wanted to talk to Costa about the case. But given how tense everything was, Acosta's colleagues in the movement were uneasy about you know him sharing this with some uh, white reporter, and probably the fact that Thompson was from Kentucky, you know, a Southerner. Uh, and you know, no offense to any Southerners here. I, I, you know, I rib on you guys too, but that's just because I'm from New England. We're kind of contractually obligated to. Uh, 
Uh, and Thompson, for his part, was worried that the uh, sheriff's department or the LAPD might target him as a way to shut him up. So Thompson, much like Raul Duke, his insert in the book and the movie, received an assignment to go to Las Vegas to cover the Mint 400, and they just used this as an excuse to get out of L.A. for a while so they could speak more freely on the subject of Ruben Salazar. It does kind of help add to the hinted relationship between Gonzo and Duke because, you know, they're kind of at odds throughout a lot of the movie, but you can tell that there's some sort of genuine friendship. Like, these two get a kick out of each other, basically. And I mean, it's even though that the Salazar case is not referenced once in the movie. Now, a great deal of that is also uh, Depp and Del Toro's acting. And there's bits of dialogue throughout that these two are not just, it kind of hints that these two aren't just like wild debauched hedonists, that they do actually, like they take their respective responsibilities as a journalist and a lawyer uh, seriously. You know, Duke repeatedly references the fact that he's a doctor of journalism. They just happen to, you know, smoke weed, take acid, snort cocaine, and do God knows what else in their spare time. They're... There, as uh, Leila Nabulsi, the producer of the movie, puts it, these two are countercultural antiheroes. The novel and the film, like, they use the delirium that these two put themselves through and the antics they get up to. And it kind of explores the, like, perceived hollowness of the American dream. And they make no effort to hide the, you know, disgust they have with, like, the decadence of Vegas, which is kind of ironic now just because that that decadence is kind of the subject of nostalgia now because, you know, Vegas is kind of Disney-fied now. It's family-friendly. I mean, honestly, like, you know, why the fuck would you take your kids to Vegas? But whatever. <laughs> I mean, I've seen even some analysis of the uh, the novel. It says, uh, Thompson even probably meant the bag of drugs to be a sign that some of the members of the old counterculture kind of it internalized the materialism, the the excess of you know mainstream American society, because he lists off all this stuff that he brought with him. And I love what Terry Gilliam says in the commentary: is like, there's no way two people over the course of 48 hours could take all that stuff. If you think that it's possible, chances are you're either clueless about drugs or you've somehow done it and survived. He actually says, uh, "quote Not that we needed all that for the trip." Uh, once you get locked into a serious drug collection, the tendency is to push it as far as you can. Like, yeah, there's a case to be made that Duke, in trying to carry on the counterculture's barrier, has sort of given in to the same kind of, like, excess that he railed against. And, I mean, it's also, uh, adds the feeling of paranoia throughout the movie, especially with the hitchhiker. Uh, I mentioned earlier that he's uh, described as an Oki. I don't know if that's meant to be Midwestern, um, it might be, but it's also just that he's not from California like the uh, like Duke and Gonzo are. And he tries to like act the part. He tries to be you know cool and hip, but he's very easily shaken by Duke's raving and Gonzo's like wild behavior and drug use. It's possible that he's like meant to represent the more you know quote unquote respectable members of the middle class in America. He kind of sees them as posers, basically. And they only treat the counterculture as fashion. And as a result, Duke and Gonzo kind of feel at odds with them. And Gonzo himself, appropriately for a character inspired by a rather aggressive lawyer, 
I mean, uh, apparently uh, Acosta got into more than his fair share of street fights and bar brawls. But he's also sort of seen as a symbol of greed and self-indulgence. And I think kind of, you could also make a case for like the, you know, the racism and violence of American society. Like he insists on coming along in the story in case Duke needs legal advice, but he does very little to be helpful in any legal sense. I mean, he goes ballistic over nothing. He like points a loaded, points a loaded revolver at, at Duke because he sarcastically refers to him as a narcotics agent after he spills a bunch of cocaine. Like he skips out on the hotel bill. He threatens locals and tourists for no reason. I mentioned earlier that he meets up with a teenage runaway named Lucy. Um, she's described in the book as of, as of indeterminate age. That's the, that's the phrase that's used to describe. She's, she's like a teenager. Uh, it's obviously still creepy. It's obviously still disgusting. I just don't want anyone to think that this is like, you know, a child, literal child we're talking about here. She is still a teenager, but you know, gives her liquor and LSD and, you know, presumably takes advantage of her in a hotel room while she's under the influence, which is probably the whole reason why, you know, as I mentioned, Duke kind of like shocks him into, <laughs> into doing something to get rid of her in a, you know, discreet way. I think in Thompson's mind, the violence the U.S. is conducting abroad in Vietnam at the time is sort of, it's starting to sort of bleed over into the general public's collective psyche. And like seeing you know, the violence being perpetrated abroad is kind of making people sort of, you know, break down and just get more violent here, as the way he puts it. I mean, for all of Duke's bizarre behavior, he is the more restrained of the two. He frightens people, but as I mentioned, Gonzo has just flat out threatened people with knives and occasionally a pistol. And I mean, there's also several comments in the movie that seem to suggest Thompson has issues with the classic image of the American dream and believes it can be amended to be more inclusive. So it's not like completely cynical. He, he's still, he's still kind of patriotic in a way. He just thinks the country's culture should be more inclusive. Uh, there's a, <laughs> there's a funny scene like with a hitchhiker where Gonzo kind of like, not Gonzo, sorry, Duke, where he gives a little background to the hitchhiker on Gonzo. He says, I want you to understand this man at the wheel is my attorney. It's not some, not just some dingbat I found on this trip. He's a foreigner. I think he's probably Samoan. It doesn't matter though, does it? He just pulls the hitchhiker really close and he's like, are you prejudiced? Hell no. Good. Because in spite of his race, this man is extremely valuable to me. <laughs> uh, you know, as if he doesn't know, you know, I think he's probably Samoan. Uh, the story there, by the way, is that um, Acosta was getting investigated uh, for some minor crime and to avoid causing him any problems, uh, they changed the description from Acosta from, you know, Mexican to Samoan, basically. It's just so there was like, uh, you know, people wouldn't connect the dots just as easily enough. Um, so I think maybe Gonzo's like volatile personality is a part of that, given the fact that he's um, based on a civil rights lawyer, it's possibly just a reflex He's probably just put up with so much, uh, you know, racial slights and prejudice over the years that he kind of just gets a reflex. Uh, there's a scene where this lady who's with a film crew in the elevator um, at the hotel, she asks 
what class he's in because she thinks he's uh, one of the riders for the race. And he goes, class? The fuck you mean? And you kind of get the feeling that he probably thinks this is some kind of like racial dig. I, I don't know for sure if that's what it was, but that's basically just how you could read it. So, yeah, I know that was a... It's probably a lot to take in, but I, I do just want to get across the point that there is a lot you could analyze here with the movie. And a lot of it, if you can analyze the book pretty well, you can analyze the movie because it's a pretty faithful adaptation. It's not it's not married to it, but it is um, it is very, very faithful, and partially because Thompson had a fair amount of input on the filming of that. So, uh, yeah, now that rambling's done. I guess we'll move on to the uh, techniques and style of the film itself. So the film makes repeated use of very intense close-ups and uh, what are called Dutch angles, which for anyone that doesn't know, if you're looking at an image in the camera and everything is sort of like tilted, it, it's tilted relative to the, uh, the horizon and the aspect ratio or the bottom of the screen, that's what's called a uh, Dutch angle. It's actually, it was originally a German thing, but you know, Deutsche, Dutch, whatever. It kind of helps create the sense of disorientation. And I mean, it was made in the 90s, so the digital effects, uh, they're kind of dated. But that and the use of practical effects help create a sort of uh, surreal feeling because nothing looks, nothing feels quite right. And that's kind of, you know, uh, what happens when you're on psychedelics a lot of the time. There's a, there's a funny scene when they're, tripping out on acid in the hotel lobby and there's this weird sort of like vine floral pattern on the floor and it just sort of like twists and mutates and there's like part of the vine that just sort of like goes up this guy's pant leg or one up the wall and then later when they're going to their suite you just see Duke jumping back and forth between the uh, solid solid colored section of the carpet near the walls Uh, most of the movie is very bizarre lighting throughout there's a mix of like lens flare and multicolored lighting. The first hotel they go to is the Mint, and the bar area there they're waiting in has a lot of mirrors to help distort the sense of the room's like proportions and scale. Uh, the dividers in the room that they're staying in are kind of uh, disproportionately big. Uh, there's a fair amount of dim lights in the first scene. The walls and carpet are a sort of garish mix of, you know, purples and greens. I mean, the whole point is to kind of help communicate the warped perception of the world around them, and it kind of makes the audience share in that as much as possible. There's a handful of scenes where the color palette of the shots is sort of naturalistic, but those are basically the outside world in the daylight. It's in the intro scene, the interlude between the first and second ads of the movie, the scene where uh, Gonzo is being taken to the airport. Those are basically just sort of like outside in the daytime, broad daylight. There's no... Uh, there's no me- movie effects going on, basically. And there's also the weird scene where they're sitting in on the DA's narcotics conference at the Flamingo, where the color scheme is a sort of washed-out grayish-blue. And the lighting is done in such a way to make the faces of the visiting law enforcement kind of stark and uncanny. Almost kind of frightening when they started bursting out into laughter at the um, the professor's like really dumb joke. Um, yeah, it almost feels like a fair amount of the film has really warm colors, even when it's meant to be sort of disorienting. This one almost kind of feels like it was shot in a fridge, basically. 
Um, yeah, the doc. The doctor there just gives a laughably out-of-touch speech, and it kind of just makes everyone's laughing face look really, really awkward and weird. They almost kind of look like puppets, basically. There's a funny... There's actually a funny scene in this, though, where the doctor's saying, the marijuana addict refers to the reefer butt as a roach because it resembles a cockroach. And it's just... It cuts to this like close up of Duke's face where he just sort of like really quietly like shifts the cigarette holder in his mouth and just like glances right into the camera like it's an episode of The Office. I, I think it's there to just make sure the audience knows that like the doctor's full of shit and Duke knows it. I'm pretty sure that's what it's supposed to be. <laughs> and uh, the adrenochrome sequence the sound is at its most distorted, the light is at its most vibrant, the camera works at its most shaky. And I think it's mostly just to get across the sheer potency of the fictional drug that Duke has consumed. And I mean, he says, Agonzo, when he's describing it, he says, it makes pure mescaline look like ginger beer. So, uh, yeah, that should give you some idea of the potency. And just to close things up before we get into closing thoughts... Uh, just because I'm a sucker for this kind of stuff, I wanted to share some trivia that I picked up from listening to the commentaries or uh, going through the supplements on the Criterion release. I'm gonna I'm gonna start with something that's just really particularly frustrating because I see this a lot on the YouTube channels I watch, and that, dear listeners, is well something called copyright abuse. So, for example, okay, so the sort of raucous music you playing you hear playing in the opening sequence is. Uh, song called Combination of the Two by Janis Joplin. And the reason that is playing is because the song that was described in the book is uh, Sympathy for the Devil by Rolling Stones. But the licensing for that, to put it in this movie, would have apparently cost about 30 grand, which was about half of what they had for the soundtrack budget in the movie. Uh, another example, Ralph Steadman, who drew the illustrations for both the novel and for the Criterion release cover, he had to draw the t-shirts for The Hitchhiker. Because, okay, in the book, The Hitchhiker is very specifically described as wearing a Mickey Mouse t-shirt. But apparently Disney threatened to sue if they were not paid for the inclusion. Because apparently Disney thinks that um, they own Disney t-shirts in perpetuity, basically, even after they've been purchased. Like, it doesn't belong to you. It's Disney still. So Stedman had to draw these sort of, like, monstrous, garish caricatures of both Mickey and Minnie as a way to get around Disney. But the most obnoxious thing is that there's a public Miro, mural, sorry, geez, of, it's called Dolores del Rio. It's a public mural in Hollywood, it's seen in the opening sequence where they're just bumming around LA for like two seconds. And the painter threatened to sue because apparently the inclusion without his permission was a copyright violation, despite the fact that it's out in public and anyone could look at it. Like they don't even need to pay for it. And universal just like settled it, made it paid him a settlement of 70 grand. At least that's what Terry Gilliam said. It was, I, I don't know how you can claim <laughs> I don't know how you can claim copyright on something when it's literally out in public day and night for anyone to see, but, you know, whatever. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, what's most interesting to me in a way, in a way that doesn't make me angry anyway, is on the commentaries, 
where it's Depp and Del Toro, uh, you know, talking about how they got into character for their roles, um, especially when they were talking about each other. Uh, Del Toro kind of makes this uh, reference to some older movies. He kind of joked that they were a bit like uh, Spencer Tracy and Catherine Hepburn. Johnny was very instinctive, um, instinctive and very, you know, able to just play it by ear as he went along, which is funny because he's playing the more reserved character. So, you know, he was the Tracy in this one. Um, Del Toro was kind of like the Hepburn because he was very, very methodical in this case again, despite the fact he was playing the more unhinged character. And he said that, like, Johnny would get things right pretty much perfectly on the first try. Like, living with Thompson for a while and getting some input from him, uh, Johnny Depp got a... (laughs) He got his impression of Thompson's mannerisms and his whole style down to a T, to the point where the producer, Nabulsi, basically said that sometimes he would show up and we thought, like, Thompson himself had come down. Del Toro said it was great working with Johnny because he was patient because Del Toro would sometimes need like five takes to get it exactly the way he wanted. And Depp was perfectly willing to accommodate that. And I mean, uh, Benicio also said that he felt that he had a lot more freedom uh, trying to decide how to play Gonzo because all he had to go on emulating Acosta was other people's impression of him. And I like the way he talks about him because like he was bizarre he was eccentric he was a little unhinged at points but he was very very intelligent and he was probably one of the few people of his day that could like you know match thompson in terms of wit and intelligence but he also had these like really really bizarre habits that are kind of disturbing at points uh according to del toro thompson said that uh acosta would sometimes put his cigarettes out on his forearm Del Toro was like, why would he do that? And Thompson basically said, just to fuck with people. (laughs) That was the kind of guy he was. So yeah, it, Acosta is a very fascinating person. As I've said, I I definitely want to read more about him because I've heard of Thompson a lot. I've never heard of Acosta before looking into this. Uh, Just some of the trivia about like shooting the movie are sort of bizarre. I mean, it's, it wasn't very well received when it came out. It's kind of become uh, recognized as a, vital piece of American literature since, but there have still been attempts as far back as 1972 to adapt it to film. And actually both Oliver Stone and Martin Scorsese were both offered the director's share at different points. And I mean, just looking at some of the people that could have played Duke and Gonzo, uh, Jack Nicholson and Marlon Brando were respectively considered, but they were eventually deemed to have, you know, gotten too old for the roles. Uh, Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi, picked but John died before that project could go anywhere John Malkovich was selected to play Duke but then he got too old and before Thompson himself suggested Johnny Depp uh, John Cusack was actually up and Depp got the call for it when he was in New York working on Donnie Brasco which came out the year before this and I mean honestly I think that's part of what made the movie so great as an adaptation uh, was that the writer of the source material had input and he wasn't being overbearing about it. Like, he was there. He gave his advice. But he kind of left the movie making to, you know, the movie makers. He left Gilliam alone to do this, which... Uh, Gilliam did a pretty good job considering this was, I think, one of the few movies he's done where he wasn't... He wasn't the writer, or at least... 
or I mean, he wrote a script, but you know, it wasn't an original idea. This was kind of a gun for hire job for him. Actually, uh, by the time he came on, Johnny and Benicio were already committed to the role fully. And I mean, just the dedication these guys had for playing the role was kind of insane. I mean, like I said, Johnny Depp crashed with uh, Hunter S. Thompson, basically lived in his basement for the better part of a year, uh, sleeping on this sort of cot or bed that he made up for himself, uh, no light, and a little barrel for a nightstand that he later found out was a keg of gunpowder, and thinking back hor- horrified as to the amount of times he's put his cigarette out on it. <laughs> and I mean, uh, Gonzo is described as being a heavyweight, like really kind of overweight. And, you know, Del Toro wasn't that. That was actually the big concern when he got brought on. And he kind of amazingly ate 16 donuts a day for nine weeks. He gained 40 pounds for the role. Uh, yeah, Layla, the producer, like she said in the commentaries, it was kind of funny. <laughs> they had these two actors who were like, you know, big Hollywood heartthrobs throughout the 80s and 90s. One basically let himself go. And the other had to get the world's worst haircut for the role. Uh, Thompson actually shaved Depp's head himself, so it would match his own male pattern baldness. And I mean, Del Toro said that he was asked why he didn't just wear a fat suit or pads, why Johnny just didn't wear a bald cap. And he said that, and I kind of like this, he said that uh, trying to hide both of those would have been too distracting for both of them, and it would have affected their performances. And I mean, on a more amusing note, um, Thompson's occasional input uh, when asked for it, because Johnny and Benicio had no idea how to play the effects of some of these drugs. I mean, there's a scene where they huff uh, what's called ether before going into Bazooka Circus, the casino I mentioned earlier. They just sort of like huff it off an American flag. And apparently when asked how to play it, Thompson apparently said, okay, imagine you just chugged 32 bottles of wine in about five minutes. (laughs) So there's this sort of, there's the same kind of like motor control issue, disorientation that you get from being drunk, but there's not the same kind of like lethargy. They're still kind of energetic and they're just sort of like mumbling things themselves because they can't really talk very well. The only lines you can really make out from, uh, from either of them is, um, is Duke basically just saying, dogs fuck the Pope no fault of mine as he's putting through the turnstile. But yeah. And Benicio also said that he practiced a sort of like sluggish jerky walk by uh, watching home video of his goddaughter who was still a toddler at the time, which is honestly kind of adorable. But my favorite bit of trivia in the sense that it sounds like it was completely made up, but it's true. I I've read articles from the man himself saying this is that Benicio del Toro said, I loved making this movie. I do not regret a single moment of it, but it did nearly wreck his career. (laughs) He played Gonzo so well, so convincingly to the point of almost like feral lunacy is the best way I can put it. Like he looked like a wild animal at points in this movie and a lot of casting directors, casting agencies, movie producers, they avoided him because he was convinced because they were convinced that he was that unhinged that he actually had some kind of like mental health issues or drug problems. And it wasn't until like two years later when Steven Soderbergh cast him in the movie traffic that he actually got a, uh, that he actually got a leading role again. Uh, 
he said in the commentaries that if it wasn't so frustrating, he'd uh, I'd ha- he actually take it as like a compliment of his acting abilities. All right, everyone, thanks for joining us tonight on the first episode of the Real Weird Podcast for one of your host's personal favorites again. Uh, I'm going to be wrapping up now. I'm sorry if that came as a uh, sort of an abrupt ending. I'm sorry if I'm rambling a little bit. This is my first time doing it. I wanted to keep this down, and I looked at the recording, and goddamn, it's over an hour. (laughs) So, yeah, I just want to reiterate, uh, Patreon's up. I've got tiers at $1 if you just want to you're just a casual listener and want to support the channel. I've got five and $10 tiers as well. Uh, the $5 means that whenever I put a poll up on Patreon, you can vote in it. And the $10 one means that you can vote in the polls and you can submit, uh, up to two questions for the monthly Q and A's I'm thinking about doing. Um, you can basically just ask anything as long as I deem it in good taste. Uh, I'll, a good rule of thumb is that if you wouldn't like someone asking you this for personal questions, just don't ask it. I mean, that's subjective, but you know, um, I'll compile it. Uh, if I get multiple of the same kind of questions, I'll just lump all of them in together. Uh, yeah. And I also make no guarantee that you'll like the answer, but you know, you can submit questions. Uh, I'm on, if you want to follow me on Twitter, I'm on as, uh, at JTB real weird. That's J T B R E E L W E I R D. I'm also on Instagram at, um, as real underscore weird underscore podcast. Uh, as for the podcast, I'm as itself, the website I'm using should upload this automatically to Spotify, Amazon music, Samsung podcasts, listen notes, and podcast index. And I do have to manually submit to Apple and Google, but it should not take much longer than that. So, uh, you know, spread the word. Hopefully we'll find some more people. Um, hopefully I can get this technique down. <laughs> hopefully I can get this technique down to a finer point. I, I am not the best public speaker. I mean, I know this isn't public, but, you know, people are going to be hearing my voice, so it still counts. I'm just a little nervous. I hope you can all forgive me. Uh, next episode, I'm still undecided at what I'm going to do. I'm going through my Criterion movies right now. I'm thinking I'm either going to hop back in time and touch on uh, Throne of Blood by Akira Kurosawa, a famous Japanese director. It's essentially a samurai version of Macbeth. Or I'm also thinking of, because it's got a nice little tie in, it also has Benicio del Toro in it. It was like 10 years after this. I'm thinking of doing Steven Soderbergh's Che which is, as you might guess, a biopic of Ernesto Guevara, better known as Che Guevara. Uh, But yeah, I'm going to try and decide which one of those to do. So uh, it'll be one or the other. I'm also going to put out what are called called dispatches, which are basically just quick episodes about my initial impressions of more recent movies that I've seen. I'm not going to go quite as in-depth, and I'm going to cover multiple ones. So, uh, yeah, those will be coming out irregularly when I get the chance to uh, just jot down my thoughts about a few of those. Um, Ideally, I'm going to have that next episode up in two weeks. So thanks again for listening. I'm signing off. Take care. Bye.